God's word. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him far from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined, like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks, for I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This far we read from God's holy word. Our passage today is chiefly describing the comfort of returning home. 
to move from sadness to, gl- to gladness was to travel from far away to home. And home for these exiles was the quaint and peaceful life of their farming communities for their weddings, festivals, and celebrations. We could think of a Norman Rockwell painting. All the beauty, all the quaint but wonderful truth of life together. And chapters 30 and 31, what we looked at last time and we're studying today, are not a, not a painting but words to present similarly and artistically the beauty of near perfection, of wonderful blessings anyway. The words alternate, though, from masculine to a feminine way of addressing God's people. I want you to notice this. In poetic and grammatic rendering, grammatical rendering, God's relationship to his people is portrayed first in masculine terms, such as father to a son, and then it switches to feminine terms, such as husband to wife, and always its relationship of God to Israel. I'll just go down them really quick. Chapter 30, previous chapter, verses 5 through 11 were masculine. Chapter 30, verses 12 through 17 were feminine. Chapter 30, verse 18 to chapter 31, verse 1 were masculine. Chapter 31, verses 2 through 6 were feminine. And chapter 31, verses 7 through 14 were masculine. And to end it off, just to celebrate everything, Chapter 31, verses 15 to 22 actually go back and forth with this pattern, feminine, masculine, feminine. What is significant? Why would I take the time to list that out for you about this artistic rendering of home with the uh, alternating back and forth of feminine to masculine? I wanted you to notice these are family words. Describing the relationship between God and his people is always using family words. Going home, therefore, means being joyfully restored with the males and females in their homeland and in their homes the right way so that fathers and sons have that great relationship again and husbands and wives have that great relationship again. And so as we study, you'll listen for this in this chapter. God loves like a lover wooing his bride. God loves like a father caring for his family. God loves like a shepherd watching over his flock. God loves like a mother mourning her lost children. So we get to our main point that the Lord God gives hope by showing his character and his dealings with his people, and so moving us from sadness to gladness. We'll see three things. First, the covenant of our Lord God, verses 1 through 9, the goodness of our Lord, verses 10 through 14, and the guidance of our Lord, verses 15 to 26. So let's start our study with the covenant of the Lord, verse 1. Our chapter starts with the phrase, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Anytime through the Bible, when you hear, I will be your God and you will be my people, that's covenant language. We love that covenant language uh, relationship with our God because it shows us his gospel relationship to us. But I want you to notice the context of verse 1. Notice, if perhaps you weren't here last week, just look with me at the previous verses. What came just prior to verse 1 here? We're going back to chapter 30, verses 23 to 24. There was a warning about a storm, about wrath, and about the fierce anger of the Lord. It's literally the storm of the Lord. The very next verse is our verse, chapter 31, verse 1. It has the effect now of saying to sad exiles, you can be glad because God's mercy will carry you through the exile and bring you home. Why? Because I am your God. I am your covenant God. I will still be your God. You shall still be my people, verse 1. But that's not all. I want you to go back a bit more. What happened just prior to verse 23 of chapter 30? Look at verse 22. Do you see it? 
I want you to notice what we highlighted last week, that just before the words of judgment, verses 23 and 24, come these words in verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. By placing the core words of the covenant both before and after on both sides of the judgment that we read about in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 30, we find that wrath is swallowed up with mercy. That the exile itself was not something to destroy them, but something to make them whole, to sanctify them, to discipline them, to grow them in holiness, to receive God's blessings. The covenant threats will still need to be carried out. They did, in fact, in real time, in history, go out into exile because of their sin and God's holiness. But beyond the discipline, on the other side of the discipline, God's covenant grace remained, that he will not abandon his people. They are forever his. If we ever started to doubt that in these last couple dozen chapters, we need not doubt it any further. In the latter days, the full significance of these words are made clear. When at the cross, the storm of the Lord broke on God's own son, Jesus, at the cross. Simultaneously, the cross was both the outpouring of God's fierce anger on Jesus and the grace of God to his people, those of us whom he will call my people through faith in Christ, people from every nation. The return from exile is presented to us here now with vocabulary words designed for the readers to recall God's actions in the past during the great exodus. If you say to people living in Milwaukee this week, bucks in six, what you're doing is causing them in just a few words to remember what happened a year ago. There's similar language here in redemption to say to God's people the exodus and it calls to mind an entire series of events. Look at verse 2. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Now, you could call the exile a form of wilderness, and it is. It gives expression to those in exile who survived the sword of Nebuchadnezzar's attacks on Jerusalem and have been driven off into the wastelands of captivity in Babylon. But when you use the word wilderness in the Bible for the original readers and also for us as students of Scripture, Doesn't it also remind you of the great wilderness wanderings that immediately followed the Exodus? So then the people back then, as well as us as readers, would understand this is referencing God's protection throughout their journey through the wilderness. So we have this beautiful phrase, grace in the wilderness. So if you're looking for something else to go on your bookmark, something else to go on your mirror, grace in the wilderness says it pretty well, doesn't it? When we feel far from God, it feels like a wilderness. And it is not new. It's a common part of the human experience, a common part of human plight, even for the people who trust in our God. Throughout the generations, throughout the story of Scripture, throughout human history, we all have experienced sadness. And it's tied to the problem with sin. It's tied to feeling far from God. It's answered by God in this passage. Our sadness is answered by God here. Using the example of people who are geographically far from Jerusalem, far from the city of God. Listen to verse 2 as it continues. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. And so that geographic distance is meant to display for us the problem of suffering, the problem of sadness, the problem of feeling distant from God. The great fountainhead of the whole passage is this phrase found in verse 3, where the Lord God now summarizes his covenant in beautiful words. He says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
That's a summary of covenant love. That's why the people were returned from exile. Covenant love was not because the people became more lovable all of a sudden, not because the people were lovely. God's covenant love was because God chose to love them despite their sins and the need for those sins to be punished, the need for them to be disciplined and be sent into exile. His love for them, combined with his holiness, made that necessary. Again, we're, we're familiar with feeling distant. We're familiar with feeling dismayed. We resonate with sadness. We relate to this issue. Our sadness can be described using language from this chapter in geographic terms. Far. Not a GPS coordinate necessarily, but you understand geographically we're far from something. And if Jerusalem is where God is and they're far from Jerusalem, the underlying principle is far from God. Sadness comes from feeling far from God. And the opposite is true. Our gladness can be described in geographic vocabulary. Near. Close. Close to God. What is said about the famous story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? If you read the story carefully, in verse 20 we read, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. It's there. This geographic representation of farness or nearness to God. Paul captures it in Ephesians 2.13. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It points us to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who once for all brought us near to God. Therefore, the gospel of grace can be described in geographic terms. We were far from God or sad. Geographic terms, emotional terms. But with his action, the Lord God gives us hope by showing his character and his dealings with his sad and far and exiled people, his sinning people, and therefore he moves us from the geographic place to closer to him, back to Jerusalem, back home, closer to God, gladness. With geographic or emotional language, we can say that God draws us, pulls us closer. We can say he makes us glad. Verse 4, he builds up his people. They take up music and dancing. Verse 5, it's time to plant. Planting gardens and vineyards. Verse 6, keep listening because one day there will be a great announcement and the announcement will be, it's time to go home. Verse 7, we don't have to wait to start being glad until that announcement comes over the speakers because gladness means singing now. Giving praise now and doing so loudly for that matter, verse 7, which is a way of saying with recognition and with deep appreciation and genuineness that the reality of the gift of the situation has come home to you. Verse 8, God uses glad language for the blind, for the lame, for the pregnant, and even those who are already in labor are all able to return home on this trip with great many people, verse 8. And verse 9, God causes them to return home on a straight path without stumbling. His protection is not just when you get there. His protection is now and all along the journey to get home. And again, here is family language in verse 10, or sorry, verse 9, with God as father, and Ephraim has his firstborn son. Covenant language from verse 1 to verse 9 is family language. We're moving to the second point, the goodness of the Lord, verse 10. God has announcements to make to the nations about God's covenant blessings. If the nations were watching what God was doing, 
having his people taken away by evil Nebuchadnezzar and now in prison in a distant land, the nations could perhaps conclude that God was not a good God. But God knows better and we know better and that's what we've been studying. But God has an announcement to make with regard to his reputation nationwide, worldwide. Watch this is basically what God says. And then the following beauty of verses 10 through 14 describe the delights of life's good moments as God now gives his gifts back to his people. It starts with the good gift of reunion. Verse 10, he who scattered Israel will gather him. What do you got to say about that, nations? Right? God is speaking to the nations here, starting at verse 10. And then the good gift of protection in verse 10, God will keep him. As a shepherd keeps his flock, another of God's gifts is having someone to get us out of a difficult place, someone to get us out of trouble. Verse 11, the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Yet another of God's gifts was a cornucopia of the natural garden goodies, pictured in verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Do you feel the winsome nature of these words? Can you imagine yourself as an ancient exile receiving this book and being comforted? A time of consolation for you in exile, not knowing if it'll ever end if God has truly given up on you. And you receive these words. You're going home. You're going to plant gardens. It's going to be like it was, only better. Who could still be sad when God loves us this much and places these promises in front of us? Then as if to turn it up a notch yet again, verse 13 describes a merrymaking scene reminiscent of a series of weddings. We're called to imagine those exiles returning home to Jerusalem and the whole community being invited to multiple weddings, one right after the other. Sense the picture of our spiritual lives when we read this verse, 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. It's spiritual blessings, isn't it? We used to ruin everything. That's how we got in this mess. That's how God started disciplining us. That's how we ended up in exile. We used to ruin everything. We'd be separate from others and alone and sad. We messed it all up. But because of God's blessing to us, because of his power, because of his love, he is able to repair everything and brings us together with others so that as an entire community, we can experience true celebration. Weddings happen again and families are joined again and we rejoice. God moves us as a whole, as a group from sadness to gladness. And then verse 14, there's a holy feasting. Points us forward then to a final banquet. We'll have blessed fellowship with others. They would find the best blessings and be filled with contentment and peace. Listen to it, verse 14. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. It's part of it, the joy is because these were not fleeting moments. These were now permanent parts of their lives. This was going to keep on happening when they got back to Jerusalem. The experience was not to be overshadowed by fear of when it's all going to evaporate. When is the new Nebuchadnezzar going to come and take us away again? No, none of that. It's already very satisfying. And what we have to look forward to is the permanent hope of the future banquet hall that is better yet. And Jeremiah is using what? is known in some measure in this world to describe what is unknown. How do you describe the blessings that God has in store for you when you get to Jerusalem, when you're in exile? 
That's exactly our moment. We're in exile. How can we begin to imagine the blessings in store for us at the banquet table in the new Jerusalem? The spiritual goodness of God to us in the forever future is here described. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have the bud of the flower in the experience of Christian fellowship here on earth. It can be so sweet. We have a sense of how good it could be. We will not be disappointed when we arrive to the great banquet in heaven and the bud of that flower opens to full bloom. How else do you say it? We move on to the guidance of the Lord, verse 15. God has been guiding his people all during this book. We're in chapter 31. God's been guiding his people to do what? If you could summarize with one word, it would be repent. He's been guiding his people to repent. The guideposts that he's now asking them to install are the guideposts that remind them about repentance. Look, you're sinners, but you're relating to a holy, holy, holy God, and so you've got to get used to repentance. There's going to be a lot of it. Finding out the things we're doing wrong, turning from them, asking his forgiveness. That's the route to gladness. Yet in verse 15, the people are suddenly pictured by one mother, a representative mother named Rachel, refusing to be comforted and weeping for her children, including the tribe of Ephraim as the sample. Rachel thought that her children were no more. What a haunting phrase, no more. It's this agonizing emptiness and finality. It's a picture of God's people sitting in the sad oblivion of exile, thinking they're on the edge of extinction as a people, with not so much as a proper burial rite back home in their homeland, that they, they themselves and their children, who they are as a people, are about to be no more. Rachel represents them, see. Every Christmas, our readings in Matthew bring us back around to this verse, Jeremiah 31, 15, because the mothers of Bethlehem were weeping, remember? After Herod slaughtered, all the boys younger than two in an attempt to kill the baby Jesus, remember? But both Matthew and Jeremiah give the guidance of the Lord here that our minds as God's people are not to stay where Rachel's mind was stuck. We should move on to the promises of God. But you're going to have to persuade me. So God does. What's the good reason given in verse 16 that Rachel could dry her tears regarding her children? Same reason for all of us down through history. In the context of the death of children, Christ Jesus was born. And in the context of people suffering in exile, God gives them a real guidance of repentance back to hope in their forgiving God. In the context of telling her to keep her Rachel voice from weeping, why is there a reward for our work? Verse 16. How is it that her children Ephraim could come back from the land of the enemy? Verse 16. Picturing certain death. How could there be hope for her future? Verse 17. How could her exiled children, the tribe of Ephraim, come back to their own country? Verse 17. The answer is from God in verse 18, where the Lord himself made a new observation. I have heard Ephraim grieving, but Ephraim was grieving for their own sins. Do you see what's happening? People are repenting. 
People were finally saying this to God in verse 18. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined. I got the message. I see my sin and I see your grace. He says in verse 18, I was like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. God notices the moment the repentance breaks out. Ephraim is grieving not for his own suffering in exile, but rather grieving for his sins, which caused his suffering in his exile under God's discipline. Do we see it? God guided his people finally to repent. Let's get in the habit of repenting. Verse 19 confirms our understanding of Ephraim's repentance where the people at long last say this to God. Verse 19, For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Ephraim has truly turned. Ephraim has repented. Don't be mistaken, it's not uh, glory to Ephraim, like his sudden initiative. It was God who gave the good gift of repentance, and God was simply unfolding the part of his covenant where he enables his people to do what he's been calling them to do from day one. We're never going to be able to fulfill our side of the covenant. God has to uphold his side of the covenant and come along on our side and uphold our side of the covenant. And only when we have God on this side and God on this side do we have a real covenant that's going to stand the test of eternity. He's saying, I've given my people Ephraim the gift of repentance. I'm being a God to Ephraim. I'm guiding Ephraim to repentance. And then what is God's response? Have you ever met somebody who's so hard-hearted they would say, too little, too late? (laughs) What would it be like if God then led Ephraim to repentance but said, too little, too late? No. God's response is a covenant response. God's response is a family response. God's response is a father's response. Father to a son. Listen to it. Verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ephraim could not repent without God's action in the first place, you understand. But the people could not leave exile without God's action to cause them to repent. We can't move from sadness to gladness without God. God saves. God gives repentance. He brings his people out of exile. He brings us out of bondage to sin. He brings us out of being stuck in an emotional, a geographic place of sin and grief. What next? After Ephraim has repented and God has said, I yearn for him, what next? They come home. They literally and historically and geographically and emotionally come home to God's city, to God's rebuilt temple, to worship God, to be his people, to fill the farms and fill the homes. Everything came true. Verse 21, the guidance is basically, let's roll. Read it, verse 21. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. It will be a blessed journey. Already the accompaniment of God and the guidance of his guideposts along the highway so they can't ruin it on the way home. And at the end of the journey, arrival in the great city of God. Verse 22, God has created a new thing. Maybe you kind of were fascinated by this. A woman encircles a man. What in the world? 
It's simply a word picture of the blessings of the new covenant. It's saying it another way. It's another Norman Rockwell painting moment. Let me put it to you this way. Do you ever hug somebody and he or she did not hug back, just kind of stand there with arms down? You ever have that really awkward moment and message sent and received? It's God hugging his people and they're not hugging back. It's just a word picture. See, the new thing that he notices is it's a two-way relationship all of a sudden. My people have turned to me. My people are repenting. They're hugging me back. The covenant bond, the family bond that God has been pushing for is now received. The people have changed. They're responding to God with the love that he has for us. He loves his people with an everlasting love and now the people have a love for God and an affection for God. Verses 23 and 24 show the previous words about Rachel and Ephraim was an example about everyone. How God dealt with one tribe, Ephraim, one person, Rachel, shows how God deals with all of his people in all the land of Judah and all of the cities. When God returns them home, they'll once again take up a statement that they used to say. Here it is in verse um, 23. Verse 23, the Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. All the people were equally in need of repentance that Ephraim needed. All the people had the same invitation, return home and enjoy the goodness of the Lord and be reunited with everyone else. God's promise was to all of his people, as is made clear in verse 25, every languishing soul I will replenish. And that's our study. Well, well, verse 26 is simply a literary tool that he used to celebrate the gladness that reflecting back on how many chapters there were about judgment, repent, judgment, repent, it's like he's pinching himself. Or wait, are we, are we actually in the book of comfort now? Are we actually in the, the place of consolation? So he writes it this way, uh, rejoicing after such a long time of preaching judgment. Listen to verse 26. At this I awoke, says Jeremiah, and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. If you're just waking up, <laughs> hope and comfort and blessing is a pleasant place to be. So that's our study. We have two applications to us today. Number one, because of the covenant love of God, move from sadness to gladness. Because of the covenant love of God, move from sadness to gladness. It's fulfilled at the cross. He died for us and rose again. We have victory. Our sins are washed away. We have a heaven awaiting for us. The love is supposed to be reciprocal. God loves us. We love God back. Christ loves us enough to die for us. We love him back. We're told exactly that in 1 John 4.19. We love because God first loved us. God's love initiates, of course. We respond. God grants us to get the repentance we do, in fact, repent. He gives us conviction. We're convicted. We turn to him. He gives mercy. God's love redeems. We leave our sadness. We enter rejoicing. This means Christians can recover from sad things. It means Christians can recover from hard pasts. It means Christians can recover from whatever happened in this generation, whatever happened during COVID, whatever happened in the previous generation, whatever you heard about, read about, have seen, anything that hurts you anywhere, you can recover. 
We can recover. We learn to live in today's blessings, not hanging on to yesterday's exile, yesterday's sorrows. This changes us. We have a covenant love from the covenant God in order to move us from sadness to gladness. Let's take that journey. The second application to us is love others by taking sin seriously because sin destroys people and community. Love others by taking sin seriously because sin destroys people and community. This covenant God, this good God, this God who loves this much to guide his people to repentance is holy. And he was willing to send his people to exile for 70 years because of their sins. Let that sink in and stay. This is a holy God, and yet he loves us because we are sinners, and he loves us. He's in a pickle. Can't go against my own holy character, but I don't want to destroy my people. And what he came up with, what he planned before the foundation of the world, was to take all that righteous anger and pour it out on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand this about this God, that he's so loved us and yet so holy that he sent his son to the cross because of our sins. Exile nothing. He sent his son to the cross in order to die for us. That means we can't tolerate ongoing and unrepentant sin in our marriages, our families, our church family, our community. First, you know where this starts. We have to start with taking our own sin seriously, my own role in all these different ways and places. What's my role in all these hats that I wear? What am I doing to contribute to the problems I'm finding? Ask God to show you where your sin is first. Seriously, search and repent. And after we get ourselves right with God, then we have moved the log out of our own eye, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and then we can start to take sin seriously elsewhere where we find specks. How can we be called a habitation of holiness as we are called here in verse 23 if we're not living as holy people? It's all just a sham then. Parents and families, leaders in schools, leaders in churches, leaders of the country, we need to discipline. We need to hold the line somewhere. Our courts need to prosecute and sentence people who have committed crimes. Because of God's love, We must take sin seriously. We need to rebuild what marriage is in our country. We need to rebuild families. We need to rebuild churches. We need to rebuild our communities to be safe places where life itself is respected. We start by taking sin seriously because sin is what destroys people. Sin is what destroys community. This is what God sent the prophets to communicate. Prophets such as Jeremiah to speak God's truth to broken communities. Remember way back the opening book Of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, God sent Jeremiah with these words from God. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10. The hope for marriage is for us to take sin seriously. It's the hope for your marriage. It's the hope for all of us in the marriages in the country. And if it's just weakness, we talk about it or overlook it by God's grace. But if it's sin that ongoing and not repented of, we have to confront it. 
Notice how patient God was in the book of Jeremiah. An instance of sin is not something to throw the book at him and be done. Both partners sin all the time. Read the book of Hosea to see how God can forgive sin in a marriage. What destroys marriages is ongoing, unrepentant sin. The hope for your family is to take sin seriously. What destroys families is ongoing, unrepentant sin. Loving fathers and loving mothers don't let their children get away with anything. Christian parents training young children watch for patterns of sin and address the patterns. The hope for churches is to keep on preaching about sin and keep on preaching about Christ and address the matters before us. The hope for us is to insist with shepherds of God on holy church members. God's plan for holiness is ambitious here. It's well beyond the realm of the church and the kingdom. God, since he's the God over all the creation, can speak here to other things. Sin impacts housing, entertainment, population, business, community development, public safety. The hope for our communities is to have courts that uphold the law of God. And the church simply speaks to that with a prophetic voice and reminds the culture what's true. Sin destroys communities. Christ redeems communities. He rebuilds communities. He moves us from brokenness to starting over, from stuck, far away from God, to arriving home, close to God, from sadness to gladness. So that's my second application in the end. Love others by taking sin seriously because sin destroys people and communities. I have this passage to end. 2 Corinthians 6.16 We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Listen, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6.16-18 Let's pray. Father in heaven,